This podcast is sponsored by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Listen for more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm here with my usual host, uh, Todd Pruitt. I teach biblical and religious studies at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania. And Todd is pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, in what he describes as the beautiful Shenandoah Valley. Indeed. And today is one of those shows where we have a special guest. Uh, Our guest today is the Reverend Jonathan Cruise. Uh, Jonathan has the great good fortune to be a pastor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and to be a graduate from Westminster Seminary in California. He's currently pastoring a church in Michigan. And the reason we've got him on today is that he has written an excellent new book on worship. Worship is, of course, a perennial interest or should be a perennial interest uh, to all Christians. Uh, And that's what we want to talk about today. So welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me. It's it's my pleasure to be here. We're going to start with a very generic question. I mean, there are an awful lot of books on worship out there. I've been a Christian now for nearly 40 years. And I remember as a young Christian wandering into a bookshop and and finding a a shelf load of books on worship. Uh, That number can only have increased over the last 40 years. So why have you written this book? What special contribution do you think this makes? Or what is the particular need of the hour that you're trying to address in this work? Yeah, uh, thanks for that question. Um, uh, Partly, I think uh, something that makes this book unique is the audience uh, to which I'm writing, which is uh, those, it's, you know, it's a book, as a, as a fortunate OPC minister, as you mentioned, uh, I'm writing from the context of the Reformed Presbyterian um, uh, flavor and background, and I wanted to write to, to uh, members, congregants, regular tenders, those who've grown up in the Reformed world and maybe don't know why they do what they do on Sunday. Uh, and one of the reasons I had that desire was from an embarrassing experience pretty much right into seminary. We had just moved to California and uh, it was, we were attending a United Reformed Church for a while. And one Sunday after service, I was having a conversation with the minister about the Lord's Supper. That's the subject that came up. And he made some disparaging comment about how many Christians think the Lord's Supper is just a memorial meal. And I said, well, well isn't it? And, and here I, I had grown up in, in the Presbyterian Reformed context. And he just looked at me just kind of like, he couldn't believe that I, those words even came out of my mouth. And he said, even your confession, Jonathan, your Westminster confession uh, says it isn't that. And I was embarrassed and it made me think, what else in worship have I been taking for granted all these years uh, or, or not considering more carefully? I'm not, I'm not faulting necessarily the, the, my pastors or the elders, but 
when it's just something that you go through the motions every Sunday and you, you, uh, and not just the Lord's Supper, but all of worship, you arrive when you're supposed to, you stand when they tell you to, you sit when they tell you to, you open up the hymnal here, you put your check in the offering plate at this point. How, how am I just going through the motions without realizing what those motions mean? So a very large portion of that book is written for people who, who might've been like me, uh, who, who find themselves very much at home in a reformed setting with reformed liturgy, but perhaps, um, the wonder of all that has worn off. I uh, kind of like you've heard the, the anecdote of the two fish, right? The, the one fish says the other, the water's great today. And the other fish says, what's water, right? Just so used to it. You're not even thinking about it anymore. So I wanted to, to write this. Actually, I had it as a subtitle at one point, but the, the editors at RHB said it was too, it was too gainly and, and, and clumsy, but it was going to be called what happens when we worship a reminder on, or an introduction to the supernatural wonder of, of worship. So I wanted it to be an intro, a reminder to those who have grown up with it, but also an introduction to those who are, who are not familiar with this context. Because as Todd and Carl, you, you can attest as pastors, what we offer on Sunday um, is well out of the mainstream of what other churches are, are doing. And so, so it, hopefully it serves that twofold purpose, um, uh, helping people know what, what they believe and, and what they do every Sunday who are used to this setting, uh, but then also people who aren't familiar with it, trying to winsomely invite them to it. It's not a, it's not a, a denunciation of other traditions, but I just tried to just open up the beauties of ordinary worship, uh, reformed worship, and say, isn't this, isn't this wonderful what we get in this? We don't need anything more. And so that's what the book sets out to, to accomplish. Can, can I just say it's somewhat ironic that RHB, a notorious Puritan press, would criticize a subtitle for being too long. I know. That's what, <laughs> I, thought too, so. that's what I thought, too. So, no. Yeah, there I must think... be a bunch, a bunch of compromised lightweights, I think, uh, <laughs> taken over that press. So, uh, I, think hey, in, I think in the end, it, they, they made the right call, though. <laughs> um, so, like so many American Christians, I grew up in conservative, broad evangelicalism, Southern Baptist life. And um, one of the things that I was taught routinely as a child, as, as a youth, as a young adult, was that um, individual worship, you know, kind of what we do during the week is to be preferred over corporate worship. Indeed, you know, this kind of this, this um, concept of individual worship was so emphasized um, that it it came across, I mean, it really did de-emphasize the importance of corporate worship, the role that corporate worship plays. In fact, I had no vocabulary whatsoever for corporate worship being central to discipleship. Um, uh, you know, you, you would hear routinely uh, kind of cavalier remarks about, you know, going to church on Sundays. What really matters is what you're doing during the week. Mm -hmm. You know, you know this this matter this doesn't matter nearly as much as what you're doing the week. That kind of thing. and and there was really kind of a a dichotomy set up where what we did, and this was ironic because it was coming from a conservative evangelical church, and you and you really kind of couldn't help but get the message that the least important thing we did all week was attend worship. Mm. Um, and 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 I know that that's not an unusual thing for people in the tradition I grew up in broad American conservative evangelicalism to hear no, you know, pastors typically wouldn't get up and say, it doesn't matter what we do on Sunday mornings, but they would come dangerously close to that. Um, I wonder if, if you just share some thoughts on uh, the difference between quote, you know, individual worship and corporate worship and why it is 
that the Reformed and the Presbyterian place such a, a high value on corporate worship, indeed, going to the extent of saying corporate worship is to be preferred. Why do we say things like that? Why do we believe that? Yeah, uh, great question, Todd. Um, that is one of my driving purposes in writing this book is to underscore that that sentiment that public worship is to be preferred over private. You know, that's why I called the book not what happens when you worship, but what happens when we worship. And even, you know, mm-hmm. as you scan the table of contents, the, the chapters kind of answer that in that same um, that same way, uh, we meet with God, or God calls us, or God feasts with us, or we sing a new song. It's all about what we're doing corporately. And uh, I guess the first thing I'd want to say is it, it's not that we're trying to discredit or discount private worship, family worship. Um, Romans 12 says we're, our whole lives are to be a sacrifice, a living sacrifice um, offered up to God. But the point uh, of... Um, emphasizing corporate worship is, is really just acknowledging what God himself emphasizes. David Clarkson, the Puritan, has that great treatise, public worship is to be preferred before private, and he bases that off of Psalm 87, which says, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than the dwellings of Jacob. More than all the private homes uh, of the Israelites, he loves Zion, the city where they all come together. And uh, we need to recognize that that it's in God's house on God's day where we meet with God in a special way. It's what goes on at church on Sunday that actually feeds and fuels our private and family devotions throughout the week. So without corporate worship, the, the others would die as, as well. So Reformed theology, uh, we refer to what goes on in worship as, as the ordinary means of grace. We don't call them the only means of grace. So we're not saying that that's the only way that you can ever encounter God or ever have a spiritual experience. But this is where God, if you want to find him, this is where he will be. Um, so true believers build the relationship with God upon the certainty of meeting him with him at his house, not on the vain hopes of, of running into him somewhere else. Just like if you need to go to the doctor's office, you're, you don't go to, to, you know, the grocery store and hope you bump into him in the aisle. Oh, maybe he can, he can assist me. No, you, you make an appointment and you go and see him. Uh, so, so as God's people together corporately, we go to God's house on God's day because that's what he desires. Uh, and God is most glorified in corporate worship. His glory is too grand just to be encompassed by what I can do by myself, curled up, uh, you know, on a, on a cozy December morning with a cup of coffee and a, and a good book. That's, you know, some people say that's all the church I need. No, it's not. <laughs> and that's not how God is most glorified. He's most glorified in the assembly, right? That's Old Testament language carried over into the New Testament, ecclesia, the church, the called out ones, plural. This is what God desires. This is what God delights in. And this is what ultimately will be good for us spiritually. And one of the hopes I know that we pastors have is that in the latest, you know, kind of crisis we're involved in where we've been isolated and services yeah. for several months were canceled. In fact, in some denominations like the United Methodists, they still have not been granted by their, their bishops the, the, the right to, uh, to gather corporately, which is crazy. Yeah. But, but one of the things that, that we've been, you know, pastors have been trying to say is that church by its very definition means a, a gathering. And so if in a certain crisis by necessity, we have to do something else, we, we understand that a moment like that can arise, but, but we would want our people to, to very much understand that however necessary for hopefully as brief a time as possible, they might have to watch something from live stream in their homes. That is not to be the norm and it's not to be 
uh, preferred over gathering together as, as, as comfortable as it is in your jammy pants Mm-hmm. As nice as it, as it is to curl up on your couch with a cup of coffee and watch the service live stream, that's never, ever, ever an adequate Mm-mm. substitute for what we're doing. And that's going to be a big, I mean, that, that is a challenge right. for us I, right now with some of our folks. And I was writing this pre-COVID, wanting to stress mm-hmm. the importance of gathering together because it was already something that was um, taken lightly in our society, our individualistic culture. Um, and now even more so, I kind of wish I could go back and and amplify those passages in the book that talk about the importance of corporate worship. But yeah, I was even thinking, I'd love to get your guys' wisdom on this. It it makes it very difficult. Zoom makes things difficult. It's a blessing. Uh, And then though, it's, it's this easy out for some people. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, and I would even want to say that while I recognize, um, and I'd be willing to hear what you think about this, but while I recognize there's a place for it, for that, you know, during a time of crisis, you could be at home watching, uh, if you're vulnerable and all that stuff, even so, if you're at home watching, you're not participating in corporate worship. You're you're right. watching corporate worship happen, mm-hmm. but you're not part of it. And I know that that you know I've had disagreements with other brothers uh, that I that I appreciate who would say, well, you know, but united by the Spirit, uh, we are together. Well, yes, we are united by the Spirit, but how is that going to get you the Lord's Supper <laughs> and right. and any number of other things that that I would have to say? We have to draw a line and say even that is not corporate worship. Um, I think it's what I like to say is we're providing a, a service to enhance your family worship or your private worship, yeah. but it's just not the same as being a church. I don't know what, what you would say to that. Right. Well, I, I mean, I, w- I would agree. And, and particularly in Carl and I've talked about this a lot in the past is that we're not Gnostics, you know, the body matters. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, Carl has said quite a few things in the past about how, um, uh, you know, preaching via you know, to people through a screen or receiving the word preached through a screen is not the same thing. And I think, Carl, you've made the point that even churches that do their preaching uh, via screen, you know, long distance to several campuses, they don't do that with their music um, because because people wouldn't want that. They want the live musicians. But for some reason, we think mm-hmm. then that, that, that the preacher can be um, brought to us electronically. But again, you know, we're not Gnostics, we and and when the Bible gives instruction to the church, I don't know of a single instance where the Bible speaks of the church just in its um, uh, universal form, where we're united in the communion of saints. But when the Bible's giving instructions for the church, it's giving instructions typically to specific local congregations or to the church as she is assembled in local congregations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm currently reading uh, Khaled Anatolios's new book, uh, Deification Through the Cross. He wrote a superb book on, on Nicaea about seven or eight years ago, and his latest book is uh, really an attempt to, to look at, at Eastern Orthodox liturgy through the lens of early church Trinitarianism, the Chalcedonian formula, etc. And it's fascinating seeing how I, I, I have very little exposure to, to Eastern Orthodoxy in practice. What's interesting about this book is how he stresses again and again that, that Eastern Orthodox worship is not a response to salvation so much as it is a constituent part of what it means to be saved. Mm. Now, obviously, we, we, we're going to have significant differences with the Eastern Orthodox on that, but, but the, the striking thing is how Eastern Orthodoxy moves from, we might say, theology proper to salvation to 
practical liturgical church life. And I wonder, Jonathan, if you might might want to talk about how, you know, it's one thing for us to, to sit here and lament that people don't get worship. What's striking about Anatolios's book is that clearly, if you get Eastern Orthodoxy by definition, you've got their form of worship. If there's a way that we can somehow as reformed people uh, not present, you know, theology over here and worship over there and somehow kind of try to tie the two together, but other ways that we could think about presenting them as, a, as an integral whole. I often think, uh, I've stressed this in, in class, when when the Heidelberg Catechism deals with the church, deals with the church under the category of grace, not gratitude. The, the church is an act of God. It's not a human response to an act of God. Are the ways that in the, the regular teaching of the church that, that I would say, you know, if, if you ask me one thing I admire about Eastern Orthodoxy at this point, read the book, it's, it's the seamless way it moves from the doctrine of God to the doctrine of the people of God, uh, are the ways that we can mm. perhaps draw on our own tradition to to make that tight connection. Mm. Interesting question. Yeah, I think uh, again an emphasis on on the catechetical to use that word maybe um, nature of worship, and that where are you going to best learn of God and who God is and what He has done. I learned a lot in seminary, no doubt, and reading systematic theologies. But where God makes himself especially known is before his corporate people, his gathered people in worship, where his word is opened up and proclaimed, where he reveals the nature of his law and his gospel. Uh, as we, we hear the law read, we confess our sins, and then he proclaims uh, a free pardon in Jesus Christ uh, through uh, the minister's uh, declaration of assurance. Um, here, it's, it's in this setting of the church where we best come to know the God whom we serve. Yeah, and, and one of the things that has been important to me to try to teach and to try to, to get folks to, to get a grip on is that in the preaching of the word, uh, we're doing something very different than we're doing in a classroom. What we do in a classroom is really important, but preaching is, is, is really different. Preaching is a plea, and that oftentimes... If I'm teaching a Sunday school class, I'm, I'm wanting to get the content. Here's the, the, the points I want you to try to remember. Here are the constituent parts of the whole. When I'm preaching, um, the, the thing that's added to, to all of that, which is unique, is, is this call to behold your God, mm. to be in awe of him. And um, that, 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 that that is kind of the chief application I have. Now, there's going to be other applications depending on the kind of text we're preaching and what yeah. the text is dealing with. but. But above all, what, what I'm appealing for is uh, for God's people to behold their God, right. to know God. And that's so central to, to our worship. One of my favorite anecdotes about preaching, I think it's J.I. Packer referring to Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, who said that one of his gifts in preaching was that by the end of the sermon, it was as though he was able to, to step away from the pulpit and leave you with the God that he would have you know. And I think that is certainly um, the call of the preacher. And, and again, another difference between preaching in the classroom is, is those beautiful words of the second Helvetic, which says the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. You can't say that about Sunday school. Uh, you can't say that about the doctrine of God. Theology proper is taught even from an esteemed seminary like Westminster Seminary of California or any other mm -hmm. institution, right? When we come to church and we sit under the authoritative word of God, we are beholding God. We are meeting with God. He himself is speaking. Mm -hmm. 
What do you think about liturgical structure, Jonathan? Is it important that services dramatize the gospel in, in the way that the elements of worship are put together? Uh, because I think a lot of, a lot of churches don't, don't do that. It tends to be you know, a sort of hymn sandwich or a time of singing, then a, a proclamation, a proclamation of the word, a faithful mm. proclamation of the word, not a criticism of that. But one of the things that struck me at Grove is a lot of our students come from Bible churches and go to the Anglican church. Yep. The, the Anglican minister, a good uh-huh. friend of mine, is right. not a criticism of the Anglican church. It's more an interesting observation that, that students coming from, from faithful Bible churches seem to want more, whether it's structure, whether it's historical roots, probably a combination of the two. But to what extent do you think it's important for pastors to think about the structure of the service, if the service is so formative of Christian discipleship? I think it's so important. Um, I, I want to thank you, though, for giving me a new phrase, hymn sandwich. I never heard that before, <laughs> and I will be using that, Carl. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a British <laughs> phrase, I think. Or, or if you're in Scotland, we call it the psalm sandwich. You know? You're right. I mean, that is, I think, your average evangelical church. Um, you come in, there's announcements. We sing for 20 minutes, maybe 10 minutes prayer, 30 minutes sermon, then you sing again. And I guess the first thing I want to say is that's not wrong because the elements of worship are there. That's not wrong. Mm-hmm. Could it be better, though? <laughs> is there a better way to do it? Um, and so in, in, my, in my book, part two, I, this uh, is titled The Anatomy of a Worship Service, how it's put together, how it's built together. And, and I believe that the liturgy can serve to tell the gospel story. And so um, it begins with a call. God calls us. We have to start there. We don't come of our own volition, although it feels like it, but we come in obedience uh, to God who, who is um, calling the meeting. He's the one whom uh, we are obeying as we come to worship. And when we get there, the first thing we recognize is that we don't deserve to be here. We're unworthy. So I think it is fitting after a call to worship that we have a prayer of invocation. Sometimes a prayer of confession falls there. If you look at classic Reformed liturgies, it's interesting to see the way the church fathers would would vary uh, these elements of the service. But you can see they were being thoughtful about it. Um, So God calls us. We confess our sin or we, we, we plead for him to be with us and aid us. And then there's the greeting. I love, I love seeing the greeting after the invocation where we've cried out to God, help us. And he says, grace to you and peace. I'm here. Uh, there's nothing to be afraid of. I'm with you. And then uh, as, as you move through the service and you punctuate these, I think you can punctuate appropriately the parts of the service with song, either songs of lament, songs of praise, um, the, the primary focus, the preaching of the word. And then um, uh, after the word for that word to be confirmed in the sacrament in the Lord's Supper. And the whole worship service, of course, I'm giving a very abbreviated version right now, but then the whole service concluding with a benediction, which I think is perhaps maybe the, hmm, uh, it's something I've just been thinking of the last few days, but I think the benediction is one of the least understood parts of the service. Uh, I think a lot of people think it's the, let me get out of here. I got some, I got some noisy kids, release us, please. Mm -hmm. Or I'm ready for coffee and donuts. Um, Or they think it means join us next time. Uh, it's it surprised me. Um, well, I was rebuked when I was, uh, I wouldn't say young because I wasn't a pastor, so I was middle-aged anyway, but was rebuked for giving doxologies instead of benedictions at the end of the service. And it's, it surprises me even today how often I'll hear a doxology. I mean, once you've been done for something, you're, you're hypersensitive to it, but how often pastors give doxologies at the end of the service rather than benediction. But I've never been able to 
I, I don't speak up about it because it would feel it feels terribly pedantic to me. But on the on the other hand, it's it's kind of important. <laughs> it is. In the one you have, um, uh, you know, a plea to God or or an ascription of praise to God, but. But the benediction is God's final word to us. So I'd love to see, I want people to see that the worship is, it's God's meeting place. So he gets the first word in the call yeah. and he gets the final word in the benediction. And that final word is a word of grace and peace. Um, uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the father, the fellowship of the Holy spirit rest and remain with you. Um, it's God's way of placing his name upon us. Number six, the Aaronic benediction, perhaps the most popular benediction used. It says there, number six, that when the priest would proclaim this, God says, thus will you place my name upon the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. So if we think of worship as, as um, counter formation, we're being formed by the world all throughout the week into what we should love and what we should be and what our identity should be. We come to church and we are reformed into what we are meant to be. We're, we're changed uh, into the very image of the Lord from one degree of glory to the next. And and just in case we forget, the very last thing God says is, no, you go out not with your name, which is sinner, but you go mm -hmm. with my name. You go with the name of Jesus Christ. And that gives us such fuel for the week ahead of how we are to serve God. So worship really is on the first day of the week. It's there for a reason, right? To, to propel us into the week where we continue to love God, to serve him, to serve our neighbor. And it, it, it seems like such a small thing. It's a sentence there at the end of the service. Um, but when it's when you see the worship service as a whole, it all comes together to to preach and to teach these realities to us and to prepare us for the week ahead. Yeah, and that's one of the ways we've tried to explain it, you know, to our congregation. Because like many PCA churches, we have people coming to us from a variety of different backgrounds, lots of Baptists and broadly evangelical, and they they come to a PCA church because they've heard that they preach the Bible and and that kind of thing, and they come and or because they heard of Tim Keller or something like that. Oh, PCA must be great and. And it all depends on what church you go to, of course. But I mean, one of the things we, we've tried to explain is that, you know, the, the whole service is is telling uh, the gospel. It's, struck, it's structured around the gospel in that, in that if you're late, if you miss the call to worship, you're missing uh, God's word to you there, his gracious invitation to you. If you, if you leave before the benediction, you're, you're leaving before, you know, because I, I don't write benedictions. I take the benedictions that are out of scripture. And, right. and right. this is God's word to you. It's not my word to you. This is God's blessing. Uh, to you. It's not just a, a verse picked at random, and it's certainly not something I composed. It's a scripture actually gives us benedictions that, that, that we are right. to pronounce upon God's people, and it's to bless them. It's, it's for their good. And so the whole service is to tell that story. And, and, and that's what I'm kind of jealous for folks to learn as they come into a Presbyterian church from, from a, a non-reformed background, is, is that we're not just throwing songs together that, that you know, kind of you know, move us in a particular way so that we can then get ready for the sermon. But, but the whole service is, is moving in a particular direction and the whole service tells this gospel story and it's for their good. And I just think that that is something that many people just miss or they take for granted or they've forgotten. Yeah. And, and, and again, that's, you know, that's why I wanted to put this book together um, so that people could read this and say, Oh, I didn't, you know, a whole chapter on a benediction. I didn't realize <laughs> just all that was having a benediction or a whole chapter yeah. on, the reading of the law and the assurance of pardon, like so that people kind of wake up in worship yeah. or paying attention and realizing I'm meeting with God right now and only good things can happen right. when I'm in Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, worship is, um, is the most important thing. It's, it's what we will be doing in eternity. It's, it's to be the center of our lives. And so how we, how we worship and, and what we understand about worship 
in this fallen world um, is awfully important. And so uh, it's good that people like you, uh, Jonathan, continue to write about it, continue to to instruct and and make uh, an appeal to God's people to understand and appreciate why we go uh, to, to the efforts we go to, to frustrate them by not making it just like every other service, but by, 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 right. by, by making central things that, that the world would see as foolish and weak and things that are, are, are seemingly ordinary, why these things are so important. And, uh, and so thank you for, for, for the labor you took to, to produce this book. And again, I would say to our listeners, our guest has been Jonathan Cruz. He is the author of a new book from uh, a wonderful publishing house, Reformation Heritage Books, and the title of the book is What Happens When We Worship. And I would encourage you to get this. Pastors, I'd encourage you to get this and um, uh, get it to your people. Um, Sunday school teachers, this might be uh, a great uh, book to use uh, along with teaching a Sunday school class on, on worship. There's all kinds of ways this book can be used helpfully um, to encourage um, our people and to help them treasure why it is we do what we do on the Lord's Day. So, Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And our, to our listeners, please uh, visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. And there you can click on a link to win a copy of Jonathan's uh, book, What Happens When We Worship. And so we would encourage you to go there um, and do that. And while you're there, uh, keep in mind that uh, Mortification of Spin is a listener-supported a podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to supply you with this content, uh, then you can certainly do that. We're so glad you joined us today. We look forward to being with you next time on Mortification of Spin. Well, this next and final song is going to be one that has made me pretty famous over the last few years. Therefore, we're going to finish off with this one. It's called Looking for City. Looking for a city built above Looking for a city Where I'll never die Where the saint in millions Never say goodbye Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. All I'm doing, so see ya. All our homes Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. When I look back at what first drew me to the Alliance, it was Dr. Boyce speaking about the great need for reformation and a return to historic Reformed confessions, biblical preaching, 
and thoughtful worship. Given the changes in our culture since then, that need is even greater today. The church today needs bold proclamation of sound doctrine, clear teaching of the Bible, and worship that is God-honoring and full of reverence and joy. At Greenville Seminary, we aim to meet this need by equipping men for pastoral ministry, men who are courageously committed to the truth, who are Christ-like in their character, committed to prayer, and called to be ministers of God's Word in local churches. If you're interested in learning more about Greenville Seminary, either as a prospective student or as an interested friend, visit us at gpts.edu. Greenville Seminary, equipping preachers, pastors, and churchmen for Christ's kingdom among the nations.